Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. For the best part of a century, buying cheap stocks was a reliable way to beat the market. But since the financial crisis, value investing has significantly underperformed. Even Warren Buffett, its most famous advocate, has lagged the market. So is value investing dead, or is it just sleeping? And in today's dumb question of the week, what is book value? Okay, let's get into it. So maybe the place to start here, Roman, is the simple question, what is value? Mm, That sounds really simple, but in fact, it's not very simple at all. It's a very complex question because you always think about things in terms of what you get and what you pay. So really, when you're thinking about value investing, I'd say the simplest definition is you don't pay too much for what you get. With the stock, it's difficult to describe that because if you're buying a car, it has utility. If you're buying an apple, it tastes good, it's healthy. Whereas if you're buying a stock, it's really difficult to say what are the benefits of owning it. But you can quantify it in certain ways. I mean, I know Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner, he always says all investment is value investment in the sense that you're always trying to get better prospects than you're paying for. It's the whole buy low, sell high thing, the first thing you ever hear about investing. But the real question here is what's low and what's high? And when do you know you're paying too much? Or when do you know you're getting a bargain? And to do that, you have to have some fundamental measure of value. In other words, there's got to be a line in the sand, a price where you think that's cheap. Is this what people refer to as intrinsic value? It might be hard to calculate, but what is the kind of fair price? for a company, for a stock. Yeah, and it's very difficult to estimate and it has loads of assumptions. So really, if you're going to be a little bit cynical about it, you could come up with any valuation you like based on what you believe about the prospects for the stock. It's definitely an art, not a science. Oh yeah, and really the inputs that you put into it pretty much determine what you get. Now it's possible to get an off-the-shelf valuation model where you just stick in the cash flow assumptions. And by cash flows, we're talking about future profits, future dividends, future revenue. So it depends on which part of the revenue stream you look at, whether you look at the top line, whether you look at the bottom line, or whether you look at what's paid out to shareholders from what's left of the profits. So each of those will create its own value measure. And I know a lot of value investors focus on something called a discounted cash flow model, don't they? Which I think is a way of cooking up a number which says, what should the value of all those cash flows and monies that are coming in in the future, what should they be worth today? And if you sell a company, this is how it'll be valued. They'll look at how much profit you make after you've paid all your expenses, and they'll project that into the future and come up with some value for your company. So it really can be quite simple if you've got a single company. But if you've got a complex company, which is multinational, where you've got all sorts of accounting wheezes which you can employ, then things get more complicated. Because you've got to estimate the cash flows and there's an inherent uncertainty there. Which products are they going to come up with? When are they going to launch? How many are they going to sell? What's the profit margin going to be? But then there's also the idea of the discount rate. Those cash flows into the future are worth less than cash flows tomorrow. But how much less is an open question depending on inflation, interest rates and all of that. Now, when interest rates were fairly stable, almost zero interest rates for a long period of time, that made things easier. That usually meant that the companies were worth more, particularly growth companies. But then as interest rates increased very rapidly, 
that reduced the value of the future cash flows. And a lot of these valuation measures must have changed very significantly. And one way that we saw that in markets was the big sell-off in growth stocks. I mean, these discounted cash flow models are interesting because all the value investors talk about them. But then I saw a quote from Charlie Munger again, and he said, Warren Buffett often talks about these discounted cash flows, but I've never seen him do one. Buffett responds, it's true. If the value of the company doesn't just scream out at you, it's too close. So he talks about big moats. That's that's what he loves. He loves a big moat. And you've got to have big margins for error, because if there is uncertainty about all of the numbers that go into these models, then something which just looks a little bit cheap might just be an error or a rounding error or a mistake in your valuation model. I mean, this is the idea of the margin of safety, isn't it? I think it comes from Benjamin Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor originally. There's, again, a nice Buffett quote where he says, you have to have the knowledge to enable you to make a very general estimate about the value of the underlying business, but you do not cut it too close. When you build a bridge, you insist it can carry £30,000, but you only drive a £10,000 truck across it. And that same principle works in investing. Yeah, so never put too much faith in the models because they're probably wrong. All they'll give you is a rough idea of what the company's worth. I think that's a lot better, though, than going into a purchase and saying, look, I don't know what it's worth, but I kind of like the story. Well, why do you like the story? (laughs) There's definitely a danger of false precision, though, isn't there, where you make this model, but you've made so many underlying assumptions that the numbers that come out of it are kind of a bit meaningless. But you kind of have to make those assumptions. And if you actually look at some of these and you look into the very ugly detail of them, usually what happens is you project the cash flows for a short period of time, say five years. And then beyond that, you say, well, it'll just grow at some terminal rate, which is consistent with GDP. So that's when you kind of essentially cop out of trying to project the future. I mean, that makes perfect sense for mature companies who have relatively slow growth and stable cash flows. But if you're looking at an early stage company, surely these models are a little bit of a nonsense, aren't they? And that's why people look at total addressable market and just say, how big is the market with all the potential customers? And then how much of that market will I capture rather than all this fancy cash flows every year? Which is pretty hand wavy, you have to admit. And there's so much uncertainty. So you also have to kind of factor in the uncertainty, I think when you come up with some estimate of future profits. So if you're very uncertain or it's an early growth stage company, then you really have to have a huge, not just a pinch of salt, a kind of, what do they call those kind of cones of salt? (laughs) A cone of salt. They used to sell it in cones. Okay, this was medieval times. Okay, but this cone of salt principle is presumably why value (laughs) investors typically buy the kind of safe, boring, mature companies and don't speculate like venture capitalists on early stage growth companies. Yeah, usually you wouldn't find a value investor investing in those slightly risky or very risky companies, because like you say, they'll go for something which is much more valuable, by which I mean, it can be valued. I mean, it does have a really long history, doesn't it, value investing? And a really well-known example of a value investor, a very early one, is the economist John Maynard Keynes. He managed King's College's endowment fund. And he had a pretty big outperformance. He managed to beat the stock market as a whole by about eight percentage points over the period between 21 and 46. That's per year as well. Yeah, so it's pretty impressive, his outperformance. And he wrote a memo to his investment committee and Keynes said that his success was down to careful selection of a few investments according to their 
intrinsic value. I think he's giving a shout out there to Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, which kind of defined the idea of intrinsic value, which we mentioned earlier. Now, I know that your most controversial opinion, Roman, in investing is that you hate the book, The Intelligent Investor, the book that everyone references as like the Bible for stock selection. It's unreadable and largely irrelevant nowadays, I think, <laughs> personally. I think you'd be much better off just spending a bit of time watching one of Aswath Damodaran's YouTube videos, which he does so regularly, or using his spreadsheet where you can just plug in values and play around with valuation models yourself. You'll learn much more spending 10 minutes with that spreadsheet than you would reading the whole of Benjamin Graham. But Damodaran is standing on the shoulders of giants. Buffett said The Intelligent Investor is the best book about investing ever written. Maybe for him. But I think all these things are subjective. The best person to learn investing from has changed over time. I don't know if Buffett's read Invest in Fear. Maybe that would take the number one spot <laughs> later. Yeah, he'd be a vol investor if he did that, yeah. I mean, one of the nice things about the modern world and modern investing is that we don't necessarily have to do all this stock selection and discounted cash flow modelling to come up with a value factor till, do we? There are plenty of off-the-shelf factor funds which use screening techniques to give us exposure to value stocks, if that's what we want. Because think about what would be required if you actually run a value portfolio yourself. It's not a static thing. It's not just fire and forget. You choose the stocks based on your criteria for value. And there's probably more than one valuation measure you'd have to use. Then once you've filtered your stock universe, you'll come up with a short list, you'd buy those but then the story's not over, because if you look at that portfolio again and rerun your filter just a week later, it'll have a different set of stocks on it. So that's why it's a dynamic process, and it requires a lot of discipline to stick with it, maintain it, execute on the trades as efficiently as possible. There's a lot of work involved, and I think people don't appreciate this going into it. Whereas if you simply buy a fund which does all of this for you, a lot of the execution will be done more efficiently. And certainly in a more disciplined fashion than any of us could do. But don't you think you feel a lot less like an investor just buying an off-the-shelf fund rather than sort of mining share magazines and looking at balance sheets and listening to earnings calls? Oh, don't get me wrong. You know, the nerd appeal obviously is something which, which I like a lot, but, but it's something which I probably would have to admit to myself I couldn't do very well because it would require diligent maintenance of the portfolio after the period of excitement is gone. And then it will underperform at some point and you'll just be thinking, why am I bothering with this? There's, you know, 100 more interesting ideas that I could pursue. So how do these passive value funds actually work then? They're just screening all the stocks, are they? Yeah, they'll usually have multiple valuation measures. And that's a good idea because sometimes a single one is misleading. But usually it's the same type of thing. It'll be the price of the stock divided by some thing, for example, the profits or the book value or perhaps earnings growth. All of these could go into the mix. And then once they've got their shortlist of stocks, they'll go out and buy it and they'll have a rebalancing period when usually they'll change the stocks in the fund. And sometimes they'll increase that rebalancing during a volatile period. So let's look at an example then. There's a benchmark from MSCI called the World Enhanced Value Index, and that's tracked by lots of funds, including one from iShares. And they use three criteria, the forward price to earnings ratio, the price to book ratio, 
and enterprise value to cash from operations. That last one sounds a bit complex. So cash flow from operations would just be the cash flow it generates by doing its normal business rather than, say, selling assets, which would generate a lumpy cash flow. And it's comparing that to the size of the company, basically. Yeah. So if the size of the company is huge compared to the cash flow which it generates from running its business, you know that it's overvalued. And what's interesting about this benchmark is it adjusts the weight of all the stocks it identifies to maintain a sector neutrality. Because what you don't want is to have an inadvertent tilt towards another factor. Let's say that it hugely favoured a certain type of stock. For example, it might be an energy stock. Well, you've actually taken a big tilt towards something which is very cyclical and which is very volatile, which you may not want. So by keeping that sector neutrality, it's usually a good idea to not have that big tilt in there as well. So you'll still get your dose of tech stocks, but it'll just be the cheaper tech stocks in your portfolio if you bought this benchmark. And what's interesting about this mix of criteria they have is that they say that the index aims to address the pitfalls of value investing. Among them, value traps, stocks that appear cheap, but which do not in fact appreciate. And they say forward earnings helps prevent them buying these value traps. And just to explain, forward earnings are based on an estimate which comes from multiple brokers. So they'll produce, you know, forecasts for Microsoft. There may be 20 different analysts that do that. And then the price will be worked out relative to the, the average forecast. Because I guess the point is, if you just looked at price to book or whatever, you might get a lot of dying companies in there. Or even trailing price to earnings. If you look at earnings over the past 12 months, then that's not the way markets operate. They usually base all of their action on what is expected in future. Now, if you speak to someone cynical, like a credit strategist, they'd usually say, well, of course, it looks cheap. Equity strategists always say things look cheap, and they always use the forward price to earnings multiple because that makes stocks look cheaper. Are credit analysts particularly cynical? Cynical and also pessimistic, yeah. You were never a credit strategist, though, were you? I was, actually, yeah. (laughs) Briefly. (laughs) They let you out, though, and you had to pretend to be optimistic. That's right. I mean, all of this sounds like a lot of work, either by the index company or by someone picking all their own stocks to identify value. But I guess the question is, does it work? Like, if you do it well, do you outperform? What does the data show? Certainly in the past, it worked really well. That's why there are so many value investors. That's why there are books written about it, because it just did really well for a really long time. In fact, pretty much since records on stocks were kept, you could see this value factor outperforming. However, as we all know, value investors are the people who've really been beaten up over the last decade or so. Yeah, it's interesting if you look back over the decades that value outperformed growth in every decade from the 1930s right up until the financial crisis. And then we've got this period of underperformance. Yeah, the 90s was the only decade where it was a bit iffy. It only outperformed by just under 1%. But over the decades, like you say, it's just been an incredible outperformer, which is shocking because you might have thought that if there was something which looks cheap, everyone would pile in and make it expensive almost immediately. However, that clearly was not the case. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Why does value outperform, at least up until 2007 or whenever it was? A market's not efficient. Like, why would you get a premium for buying cheap stocks? Everyone can see they're cheap. 
The thing is, if you look at markets right now, you can see this effect in action, which is that certain sectors are sexy. At the moment, it's AI. Previously, it was blockchain. Before that, it was Web 2.0. You know, every single generation, every decade, every year, there's something fashionable. So these are like the Furbies of investing. You know, it's a brilliant toy to buy your kid, but, you know, next year, they're just not going to love daddy if he buys them a Furby. <laughs> You're speaking from experience. Yeah, I keep on buying Furbies every year. My kids just don't like them anymore just because they're in their 20s. I don't understand. <laughs> but if that's the case, then even though the stocks are cheap, people don't want to buy them. So let's look at energy stocks just before we had the huge energy rally after the pandemic. Nobody wanted to know about energy. And that was true for a long time, well before the pandemic. And yet suddenly they became the new thing as energy prices surged. Or perhaps you're talking about boring consumer staple stocks where people find it really hard to get excited about Unilever and Marmite. You know, why would, why would people <laughs> get excited about the thing that you go to buy every day at the supermarket toilet cleaner? You know, I mean, it's not exciting, but people need it. It's not until the prices of toilet cleaner starts going up and then everyone loves it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a big part of it is human nature and people getting excited about a certain sector and then just ignoring the rest of the market. Is that really what explains it, though? Just people being dumb, like sentiment when it comes to sectors. So with energy, maybe it was the ESG push over the last 10 years and a bear market in commodities. Well, ultimately, a lot of purchases and sales of stocks is based on human behaviour. And that's true whether you're a fund manager or whether you're a retail investor. And then you could say that the next level up in complexity is, like Keynes said, it's a beauty contest. You don't do something based on your belief. You try and guess what everybody else is believing. And if everybody else believes in an AI rally, and that's driving a bubble, well, you'll buy it too. Because even if you don't believe in it, if enough other people do, then sure enough, it'll rally. So it's kind of rational to do this irrational thing. Yeah, I guess it is logical to buy into a bubble, so long as you can think you can step off the elevator right at the top. Which many people have done successfully in the past. Personally, I don't think I could do it. I mean, some of the research I've seen about value stocks and why they might work is that there's this kind of overreaction effect in play when they have a little bump in the road. So a company might be doing well, growing its earnings, but then, oh, it has some litigation against it or a new product flops and the stock price falls because it thinks earnings are going to fall, which they do, but the stock price falls more than it should. And if you buy in at that point, when it reverts to mean and things aren't as bad as people thought, you do well out of it. Yeah, this is why I bought bank stocks, because I thought, well, people will still need banks. The prices have come down a lot. And we're still in a situation where the US economy is kind of OK. So these are cyclical stocks, and I think they'll probably recover. And so, you know, you always have to think, have these stocks been unfairly punished? And will they be forgiven, if you like, in the future? Yeah. It's kind of a cocktail of your favourite things, which is overreaction bias, recency bias, and reversion to the mean, your most favourite thing of all. <laughs> you, you must be a value investor at heart, I think. These are a few of my favourite things, Michael, yes. It's interesting the point you made earlier about how it does rely on this rebalancing, whether it's six monthly or annually or whatever, where you shuffle the stocks and you take the stock that was a value stock and you were getting a P-E ratio of, I don't know, six and now it's up to 12, well, you could sell that stock and get another stock with a P-E ratio of six. 
and you've kind of incorporated more earnings back into your portfolio for the same amount of capital. And you have to do that every year. Otherwise, you're just no longer going to have a value portfolio. And what I like about it is that it is based on a quantitative measure. It's not based on a narrative. Whereas people often invest based on a narrative. They read something in a share magazine, perhaps, or in the FT or the Wall Street Journal. And then they'll say, well, this narrative is consistent with these stocks outperforming. And the narrative might be false. It might push up valuations. Whereas with value investing, you know the numbers when you enter the trade. They might be wrong, but still, you know that relative to this measure, whatever it is, price to book, price to earnings, this stock looks cheap. Wrong numbers is better than a good story, is what you're saying. Yeah, at least it was wrong and in a structured way was incorrect. I guess value investing is interesting because inherently it's a contrarian strategy, isn't it? You're looking for the unloved things that everyone else is saying. Why would you even bother buying that? And what I love is that you can suck a narrative out of it. For example, you'll see that a certain thing has appeared on your radar and it might be a story that's simply not reported in the press. And then what would be very rewarding is to see that story starting to be reported in the press after your stock and your filters picked it up. I think that'd be great. Everything Warren Buffett buys is reported in the press. But maybe one of the things we didn't mention about Buffett, which is different to what we just talked about, is that he doesn't buy into this idea of you buy what's cheap and then you sell it when it gets to fair value a year later or two years later. He thinks buy it when it's cheap, yes, but then you just hold it for decades probably. Or forever. That's what he talks about. Yeah. And he has pretty much held a lot of his companies forever. Some of them he bought outright, like Geico Insurance. Yeah. And some of the railway businesses. He does trim his positions in the stocks he owns from time to time. But it's interesting how he's very much an old school value investor. He thinks of it like buying a farm is what I've heard him say. You bought the farm, you milk the cows every year. You're not going to sell the farm just because it's doing well or not doing well. And you should treat it like you'll never be able to sell something again, as if the market is something which appears and disappears intermittently. It's an interesting approach to investing that, I think. You'd approach portfolio construction quite differently if you could never sell it, right? If there was no liquidity in what you bought. It's a very different mindset from what most people have. They just think that it's about 10 baggers getting in, getting out, and that it's all about, you know, flashing lights on a screen. Whereas in fact, what you're buying is part of a business. And I think that's a much more healthy way to look at capital and about capitalism in general. Yeah, I agree with that. So value had this incredible history of outperforming for 100 years plus, maybe. So why did it stop working? What happened towards the end of the 2010s when we got the financial crisis that it's massively underperformed since then? I think it's a combination of things. I think one of them certainly is a cultural thing in the United States. Zero interest rate policy as well, of course. ZERP is certainly part of it. So that's the phenomenon we talked about earlier, kind of the inverse of it, where if interest rates go to zero, then those future cash flows, 10 years out in the future for growth stocks, suddenly become more valuable. And if you've backloaded your cash flows, then suddenly those companies look really attractive. So rapid growth of earnings becomes much more important. And these tech stocks, of course, did offer that. And then we had this whole VC industry in the United States spring up, and there was a lot of capital behind it. And it was just amazingly, spectacularly, brilliantly successful. And I think another reason for the underperformance of value over the last 15 years is that coming out of the financial crisis, so in 2009, at that point, 
the valuations for growth stocks and for value stocks look to be almost identical, which is very unusual. Yeah, you can look at the difference between the two. You can think of it as how much extra cash people are willing to stump up for a growthy stock. So if they've got the same earnings today, the question is how much earnings do they offer in future? And during the period coming out of the financial crisis, people weren't willing to pay any extra for growth at all. The valuations were identical for growth and value. Which is historically a huge anomaly, right? And so any kind of mean reversion and an increase in that spread, so a willingness to pay more for growth, would have meant underperformance for value. Yeah, we really did have a period when people were saying, this is the end. You know, there's not going to be a stock market. There's not going to be a banking system which was crazy, you know, in retrospect. <laughs> but at the time, it was all quite scary. Yeah. And I think the other point here is that we really do have a global economy now where a company which is based in, you know, somewhere really esoteric, someone in Hull, for example, could actually create a multinational company where they could sell their products and services anywhere in the world. Whereas previously, if you go back, you know, 20 years, 30 years, that would have been impossible. This is why we have the big tech hub in Hull, isn't it? <laughs> there probably is a tech hub. Yeah, no. <laughs> but that would never have been possible previously. You know, you could have had a country where you had an incredible company, but it couldn't be successful because it just couldn't scale globally. So I think this combination of the internet, less barriers to trade globally, combined with these really revolutionary technologies built on top of the internet, all of that fed into this period of growth, particularly for tech stocks. I mean, some people say that we had such weak economic growth that people were obviously going to be willing to pay a lot for any companies which showed they could grow their earnings. That was the other thing, I think, which is, like you say, in a growth-starved period of time, anything which does offer growth becomes more attractive. And the other point about those tech companies and software companies is that often when you look at the balance sheet of a company, that kind of intellectual property and brand assets and their quasi-monopoly power is not really captured on their balance sheet in the same way that plants and machinery and hard, tangible assets are. So maybe they looked expensive because it wasn't factoring in the value of their intellectual property and software and staff. And I think a lot of people just didn't realise what you could do with the internet. None of us did, really. People were talking about what was possible. But all of the things that people talked about in 2000 were not the things that became popular. Things like streaming music, streaming video, all of those became possible as the bandwidth essentially ballooned. What were people talking about in 2000? Well, people were just assuming that it would just be the same old model of stuff and it would just be sold in a different way, you know, like pet stores or books, you know, like Amazon. You know, they thought it would be restricted to just those things. I think people didn't envisage the subscription model or the value of data. So Google's massive earnings come from data, right? They know everything about what everyone types in on the internet and then they can sell that to advertisers, which probably wasn't envisaged so much. It, people thought it was going to be, you pay 99p for a download of a song, which it was for a little while, but that quickly went away. There were certain people talking about data as the new oil. You know, I was part of a kind of think tank at the time, which was trying to think about what would happen to these technologies in future. It's always hard to predict these things, isn't it? Futurology is super hard. I mean, Paul Krugman, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics, back in 1998, he said, by 2005 or so, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. And I guess if you look at pure economic growth figures, 
you might say that's true. <laughs> the internet hasn't given us a boom in economic growth. But for those companies, it's been incredible. And the spectacular growth in profits that they've generated have been fairly unprecedented, I think. You'd have to go all the way back, I think, to something like the East Indies companies to see something comparable. I mean, we're talking about this in the context of value investing, because these are the reasons why value investing has not done so well recently. But this isn't the first time in history that value investing has underperformed. There have been periods in the past, short periods generally, where it didn't do so well. So I know that in the 1960s, there was a similar kind of growth stock bubble, kind of around technology as well, where there was the nifty 50, wasn't there? Companies like Xerox, IBM and Kodak were all seeing investors pile into them. Yeah, and there were lots of bubbles in the past where certain things became exciting, like bicycles or canals. And of course, railways in the UK. And there was the dot-com bubble. It was another period where growth outperformed value for a few years. And then it ended badly, obviously, at the time. And Warren Buffett looked like a complete idiot. I still remember people laughing at Warren Buffett during the dot-com bubble, saying that he was finished, that he had no idea what he was doing, that he just didn't get it, the new technology that was out there. But of course, in retrospect, he did get it. Well, I think that he didn't get it. That's the whole point and why he didn't invest in the dot-com bubble, right? He's always talking about his circle of competence and he's quite happy to sit there and not buy something if he doesn't understand it. Which is a good way to think. If you don't understand something, it's probably best to avoid it. He always talks about being a value investor as kind of being a batter in baseball. And you should just stand there and let pitches go past. You just wait until you get the perfect pitch right in your sweet zone and you swing as hard as you can at that one. And he doesn't always get it right. You know, things like Heinz, he didn't value that properly. So he admits that he does get it wrong. But I, I still hold that during the dot-com bubble, he did the right thing. Yeah, definitely. He didn't change his spot. He didn't suddenly become a Kathy Wood, put it that way. <laughs> but it must be tempting, even for professional managers, to kind of jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, if you can see your style's underperforming, then it would be terrible. You'd have to sit it out for so long. Your assets under management would be collapsing and your profits would be too. But there was a glimmer of hope for value, wasn't there, in 2022. So the relative performance that year of global value stocks versus growth stocks, based on the MSCI indices, showed that value was up over 20% relative to growth. This was kind of during that big crash, right? <laughs> value didn't crash as much. And it outperformed, yeah. It looked like that was the glimmer of hope. Everyone was saying this is the return for value. But have we just gone back to the same old story now? Well, 2023 is very much a replay of the huge euphoria that we saw in 2020 and 2021. And of course, it's growth stocks which have dominated that. And this time around, the narrative's different. It's about AI. It may be justified, but I don't think a lot of the companies can generate enough profit based on AI to justify the valuations that we see right now. So I think probably what we'll see is a pullback of those growth companies which have rallied a lot and become really expensive. And again, that'll push value, which means it'll outperform. But for the gap between value and growth to close now, like for value to catch up, what would we need to see economically? Or do you think it would just happen anyway? It is already happening. We're already seeing valuations for the really egregiously overvalued companies start to fall. And if you look at how much stocks have fallen since the peak, and here we're just talking over a period of about two months since midsummer 2023, the stocks which had the highest valuations, many of them are the ones which have fallen a lot. 
Yeah, but that's kind of a subtly different point, isn't it? That's like the most expensive stocks are overvalued. But do you think the cheapest stocks are undervalued and will perform well themselves? Well, these things are always relative. So for value to outperform, you could have growth underperforming or having just lower returns. Yeah, relatively. And if you were doing a long short strategy at a head fund, you could monetize that. But if I'm just buying a value tracker, I'd rather value stocks sort of go up in value <laughs> rather than just watching the growth stocks fall, nice as that might be. But the thing is, if you're comparing it with a benchmark like the S&P or the NASDAQ, then because those are so dominated by these mega cap eight stocks, if those are falling, then you'll look like an absolute hero. Yeah, I'd like to look like a hero, but I want to make money. <laughs> well, you'll lose less. <laughs> is that all you can hope for now as a value investor, just to lose less is what I'm trying to get to? Well, you'd always do it relative to a benchmark, always. That's always how you're going to judge these things, factor funds. You'll never think of it in absolute return terms, or at least you shouldn't. I mean, let's say we do buy into this idea that value is going to outperform over the long term, and it's just had a bad 10, 15 years. What are the, some of the things to be aware of? Like, what are the risks of holding it? I think one of them is the cognitive difficulty with sticking with something that underperforms for a long period of time. I think anyone who has been through that experience and stuck with value is very unusual. How could you stick with something for a decade when it's underperformed fairly consistently? So if you are going to go for a value tilt, it's probably best to go for one where there aren't these very long periods of underperformance. So for example, quality tends to be much less crashy as a factor. And by crashing here, I'm talking about relative performance relative to the market. So value is quite a crashy factor. It wasn't in the past, but now it is. And growth, for example, which is the opposite of value, that's quite crashy. You know, it does have periods of underperformance, which are fairly long. Quality, on the other hand, doesn't have very long periods of underperformance historically. Could you combine them and have quality value stocks? So, for example, if the flavour of value you go for is high income, then you can certainly go for high income value combined with quality. So there you'd be thinking about the sustainability of earnings growth, as well as the steady increase in dividends paid, and not too much leverage. That would be another quality measure that you'd look for. All of these could feed into a reasonable filter. So dividend quality is certainly something you can buy if you just Google for funds. The one combination which Jim O'Shaughnessy found in What Works on Wall Street, which tends to work fairly well, is a combination of value and momentum. So value, of course, is stuff that's cheap because nobody loves it. But what you'd be looking for is something which is cheap, which is turned around and is now starting to rally. The bounce back stocks. So he describes this as a trending value strategy that combines the best of value and the best of growth. And he says this and another strategy consistently ranked at or near the top when ranked by absolute return, risk adjusted return, downside risk and maximum decline. So I guess that would imply you would be buying the companies not at their nadir, but as they're just starting to get back on track. That's right. They've got some evidence of improvement and they're not so much hated anymore. Like Meta. It's interesting that people talk about value, usually in the context of financials and energy companies, oil companies, because that's usually what looks cheap over the last 15 years. But the index actually has been shook up quite a lot in the pandemic period as we had the massive rally and then the huge crash in growth stocks. So Meta 
in the middle of 2022, along with Netflix and PayPal, were actually added to the Russell 1000 value index and their weightings in the growth index were like massively shrunk down. And we have seen a massive bounce back from Meta. So it would probably tick that box. And now it's no longer in the value index and this year has gone back into the growth index. So it had this brief period as a value stock. And if you'd ridden it over that year, you'd done pretty well, I think. I mean, what do you reckon? Who would suit value investing? I think you've got to be a little bit bloody minded. You've got to be someone who takes great pleasure in running the opposite direction to everyone else. But you've also got to stick with it and be utterly ruthlessly disciplined, even when it seems as if it's not working. You need patience and you need a long time horizon. Yeah. And so if you're just about to retire, it's unlikely that value investing will work for you. I mean, you've definitely got to be a contrarian to go back into value investing now after this long period of underperformance. But like, ironically, this might be the best time to go back into value investing right after the long period of underperformance. Yeah, so I think now would be a sensible time to do that when you've got a huge spread between growth and value, which usually mean revert. It's easy to get caught up in one of these narrative bubbles. And if you want to sense check it, then why not run it past our community? You can do that on our chat groups. And we've got lots of members only content that should hopefully talk you off the overpaying ledge. To learn more about our premium membership, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. What is book value? Now, we've kind of mentioned it a few times today in passing that one of the things value investors might look at is the price to book ratio. But what book are we talking about, Romin? Well, people used to talk about the accounts of the companies, the books. Cook the books is the context I've heard it in. Yeah, cook the books. And the bit which we're talking about here is the liquidation value of the company. So if you were to sell the company, how much would you get for it after you pay off all the debts? Well, if you were to sell all the little bits of the company, right, not the company as a whole. Well, you liquidate it. So you look at the difference in value between the assets and the liabilities. The liabilities are how you paid for the stuff in the assets. The difference between the two is the book value. Yeah. So you could sell your buildings and your machinery and your land and pay off the bonds you have and your debt from the banks. And then what you're left with is your book value. That's it. So why do we care about this so much in the context of being a value investor? Is this one measure of that intrinsic value thing we were talking about? Yeah, and it's one that would have made a lot of sense in the past, where you had factories which were very capital intensive. But when you've got a bunch of knowledge workers on beanbags playing table tennis <laughs> and coming up with software, well, suddenly it's not such a good measure of value. Because if you've got a couple of lone geniuses in that company that are going to come up with the next incredible piece of software. You know, where does that figure in terms of buildings and machinery? Yeah, beanbags are not on the books. Well, the beanbags <laughs> are, but the people on the beanbags are not on the books. And their ability to ideate, I believe it's called now. <laughs> we sound sceptical, but it's a serious point though, isn't it? That book value probably doesn't do a good job of capturing the value of a lot of modern companies. But if you think about something like Disney, surely a lot of its value is in the name Disney, right? That they can stamp on a movie and then people will go and watch it. And things like Goodwill, when you buy a company and some of the valuation will magically be due to the brand value. I mean, I think there are some complexities around book value, even if you're looking at one of those kind of traditional manufacturing companies in that if you buy a new piece of machinery as that company, you then kind of 
amortize the value of that piece of machinery over a long period of time. And on the books, it's depreciating each year. But that might not correlate with what you'd actually get for that piece of machinery if you sold it at any one time. I mean, one thing I saw a lot of people talking about earlier this year was how Japan's stock market looked cheap. And one of the things everyone was saying was that around half of Japanese listed firms were trading below their book value. And it was a fair point. If you look at the performance of Japan since then, you can see that it was a good measure. It's interesting, isn't it? The idea of it being below book value, because it means you could kind of theoretically buy a company and just sell all its assets and be quids in. Yeah, another way to think of it is if you were to reproduce the company today, in other words, produce a factory, create intellectual capital around it. Buy all the beanbags. <laughs> the people to sit on them. How much would that cost? That's essentially what you're measuring relative to. So rather than think of it as destruction, think of it in terms of a creative process. I mean, the real standout among developed markets seems to be the US, where all the other big developed markets look to be trading at less than two as a price to book ratio, whereas the US is over four. But then again, a lot of the US value is in this kind of intangible property space, IP brands, so maybe the price to book isn't capturing US value properly. But even if you do look at things like price to forward earnings, there the US is still looking expensive. In fact, I challenge people to find any measure by which the US looks reasonably valued. There just aren't any. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.